this is Kara Foster from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Madisonville, Kentucky, and you're listening to our sermons podcast. And if you want to find out more information, you can connect with us at www.madisonvilledisciples.org or come in person at 1030 College Drive, uh, Madisonville, Kentucky. Subscribe and enjoy these podcasts. So if you've been worshiping for a long time at First Christian, you may have heard me mention how much I enjoy the book we will be talking about this morning, the book of Revelation. I think it's vivid and emotional and full of imagery that is helpful for me to remember that there is justice and hope in the world. My former worship director in college called it the worship book of the Bible because of how many hymns and songs come from it. We've already seen that this morning. When I studied it in seminary, one author said Revelation showed in the sky what was actually happening on earth. I like to think of it as a tangible view of the hope that Christ came to offer us. But I am aware that the book of Revelation carries a lot of baggage for a lot of people. It's been used and abused in an attempt to frighten and berate and control people and their behavior. It does have dark and scary imagery, uh, and that can cause you to grimace or to be uncomfortable. So unfortunately, what happens is sometimes the hardest parts of our scripture get ignored. And so we try not to focus on things that are difficult or obtuse. But today, I want us to look at what I think is one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture that we have. And dare I say that it encapsulates the entirety of the gospel and reminds us of why we pray, worship, and gather together. I know I'm putting quite large expectations on this passage, but I do truly think that it's special. And before I read it, however, I would like to talk a bit about imagery and a couple words that come to mind when we talk about Revelation. Those words are behold and awe. Behold is relatively easy. The author of Revelation invites us to do what they are doing, and that is to pay attention to what is going on in front of us, and then use it. Awe, on the other hand, is a little harder. It's one of those unexplainable emotions where your breath is kind of taken away, and you're witnessing something you can't really put into words. I remember I got to travel to Paris after high school, and I was touring the Louvre, and I ended up getting turned around and wandering into the Egyptian artifact section. And before I knew it, going through this dark hallway, I was face-to-face with truly one of the most beautiful clay statues I had ever seen. There wasn't anything, I think, extraordinary about it, except it had these big, bright, blue eyes that they just kind of pierced into you. It felt like I was looking at a person. I stared at it for what felt like forever. I'll never forget the awe and the wonder I felt looking at this ancient thing, feeling almost a connection to that world that had passed so long ago. And I think that's something that Revelation allows us to do, is look eye to eye with those who came before us from a long past culture. It is hard to have your breath taken away by a written paragraph. It's much easier to be in awe at a beautiful view or a piece of visual art or a powerful storyteller. But I'm going to try 
my best. And if you uh, don't get into awe, there will be no refunds. So when the book of Revelation opens up, we have a sometimes harsh but relatively normal letters to some churches. But then the vision begins. And I'm going to read starting in chapter 4. John says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. I know many of us aren't used to hearing or reading this type of imagery. Why are there so many sevens and 24s repeating? What, what does that mean? Why does John keep talking about all these weird eyes on the animals and the angels? What are with the scrolls and the seals? They seem ominous. They are. Just, just so we know, they are ominous. Each of those questions is a good question. And trust me, you can find a lot of books and writings about each one of these questions. But today I want to focus on some different parts of the scripture. Now, all of these images are what I would call awe-inspiring. When you look especially at the beautiful natural imagery that we find in the fourth chapter, jasper and ruby, green and red colors that we find all over our world, 
In natural settings, green means life springing up. If you've ever seen a desert at sunset or at dawn, you will see a red shine popping. It means a new day has come. You see a great sea in front of the throne as well. We understand this throne room as a meeting between heavenly reality and earth. It foreshadows the ending of the book where heaven and earth finally become one and the resurrection that began with Christ is finished. But Revelation is so much more than just imagery. The book of Revelation asks us to see what is happening in our world. John beholds what is happening and invites all of us to see what is going on. We behold who sits on the throne when God is in charge. It isn't someone who is powerful. It isn't a lion that is fierce, though he's called a lion. It isn't someone who is controlling or violent. Quite the opposite. It is just a little lamb. And not just a lamb, but one who has been slain or slaughtered, one that has already had violence enacted upon him by the world that John is both a part of and over in this vision. That's not who anyone would expect to lead a people, especially a people experiencing the type of world that these people were experiencing. Too often, I think all of us, we jump to strength and bravado and certain safety when in reality we're called in Christianity to reject those ideas. We serve a Savior who was poor and humble and lived in a constant state of uncertainty, wandering from town to town, not knowing where he would even sleep. When the elders sing, you are worthy, our Lord and God, that final phrase, our Lord and God, is only used one other time in the New Testament by one of my favorite characters, Thomas, who recognizes the resurrected Lord and says that exact phrase. But more relevant to John and his audience was that it was only ever used to talk about one person in the entire world, the emperor of Rome. John is saying, you proclaim this powerful man who persecutes and kills my siblings for their faith. But instead of taking up a sword and deciding who sits on the throne next, we know that on our throne, now and in the end, sits a lamb who you could not kill. And though that may feel uncertain, the book of Revelation shows us that when we follow the meek and the persecuted and those who have been harmed by the world, that is where you find God. And that is where you find strength. It's probably been overstated by ministers in your life who talk about how different the first and second century was to our day. It didn't have our structures of church. It didn't have our technology or our culture. And it was under a real attack that thankfully a majority of Christians today will never experience. They were, early Christians were in conflict with their families, communities, and the nation of Rome that occupied them. John's writing is not indecipherable to us. He beholds the lamb on the throne so that we may know where our strength comes from. I hope we've all experienced moments where we look towards God and ask for the strength to carry on, strength to make the right decision, strength to follow our principles when challenged. We feel that support from the Spirit of God. And John shows us that that strength comes from 
a little lamb. He asks us to behold that it comes not from safety or certainty or strength, but by someone who was slaughtered. I remember when I graduated college and began seminary, I wasn't honestly even sure if I still believed in God. I wasn't sure if I believed in the church or in people anymore. I just knew somehow that seminary was the next step for me. And it took a good year and a half for me to figure out if this is actually what I wanted to do. I eventually found my home, but it wasn't pretty, it wasn't a sure thing, and it wasn't safe. And, and don't mistake, I don't want to make it sound like I'm a hero of the faith who stepped out on faith. Quite, quite the opposite. I was frightened and unsure and doubtful. But God was there with me, not controlling me like a domineering king or a powerful father figure who wanted to make a decision for me. It's not about control. I can't think of anything that has any less control than an injured little lamb. You can't control anything. Jesus appears not in a new form, not as someone who has forgotten their struggle, but as someone who still carries their experience with them. I know I carry my experiences. You carry your experiences. They shape who we are. I think that stuck out to me as I prepared my sermon. I could awe at all the imagery, the sights, the sounds that are present in this passage, but what I was in awe of was that even in heaven, the lamb is still slaughtered, is still slain. This life we live, the choices we make, and the experiences that we go through, they stay with us. And they don't keep us separated from God. It is quite the opposite. They draw us closer to heaven. John is speaking to those who have had family killed. And he is speaking not to them, but for generations to come. I don't know if you're aware of this, but from the fall of Jerusalem to the day that Christianity was legalized in Rome, that time has lasted longer than our country has existed. By showing a slaughtered lamb, John is offering hope that must sustain a people for generations and reminding those people that their friends, their family, their loved ones who pass away from violence aren't just remembered by God, no. They are raised to a seat of honor with those who have died for the faith. Our modern context is not left out of this vision. It's not just for people of the time. We've had great leaders who have sacrificed for their community of faith. We have big, important names like Desmond Tutu, who just celebrated a birthday, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who fought Nazi Germany, or Martin Luther King Jr., who struggled for justice in our very nation. But it doesn't have to be that extreme. We are not all called to be great leaders who disrupt social and religious order. Many of us are called to behold the work of God in the world and then find a way to take part in it. I think that's where my sermon illustration doesn't do the best of jobs today. John in this chapter beholds and stands in awe and witnesses the work of God throughout the book. But we can't stand in awe of the work of God forever. We must take action. Does it have to be as extreme as taking to the streets like Reverend Tutu or King? It does not. But it can be the everyday work that is needed for our communities and our churches and our families to thrive so that they can be delivered good news and so that they can go out 
and deliver hope into the world. I mentioned at the beginning that Revelation helped me understand the hope that Jesus came to offer. As this book continues, things get very dark. They get very heavy. There is undoubtedly violent imagery that frightens us. It reflects our world, a world that sometimes, and depending on who you are, might oftentimes frighten us. But in the end, that scary place is redeemed as a place with open gates and no alarms. This chapter, though, has a different meaning that may be lost on us today. Many commentators have noticed that the room that John is in is a recreation of the temple, specifically the Holy of Holies. See, in Judaism, this is the room where God lived. God dwelled there. And it was so holy, only one priest per year was allowed to enter. But the Holy of Holies was destroyed when the temple fell. The way we know that they are connected is this sea that sits in front of the stone, that sits in front of the throne. Multiple times in the Old Testament, a molten sea is created by metalsmiths to be placed in the temple, but then it is destroyed. But in heaven, it's a natural sea, one that can't be conquered or destroyed by conquest or armies. John, a good first century Jewish man, seeing this would stand in awe. Even though John was a follower of Christ, he still had his upbringing. He grew up going to the temple and hearing stories of the first temple that was built by Solomon. This is where the Holy of Holies was. This was the center of Jewish life for centuries. And then it went away. And they rebuilt it, and it said the old men wept because it wasn't as magnificent as it was before. But life continued until... They were conquered again, and the temple became occupied by Roman guards and controlled by Roman politicians. And then it was destroyed, and John had nothing. But John is seeing in this vision that there is no need for a third temple that is less than the first two, because in heaven there is already a holy of holies, built that is superior to the first two. By beholding and being in awe, the truth of revelation is being revealed. That whatever we lose here is never truly lost. Because Revelation shows us that in heaven, in the cosmic world, in the reality that is greater than our own, nothing truly passes away. Everything is redeemed and reborn. This is the hope we celebrate the first week of Advent. It is what we proclaim on our upcoming All Saints Day. It is the main assurance of Easter that... In our faith, that despite the harshness of our world, we have hope in heaven above. That justice and redemption are working today and will continue to work. We know that the things in this world, the people we love, the places we cherish, will one day no longer be here. Whether it's in a few decades or a few centuries. Just like the temple, nothing is permanent. And that brings us sadness. And it should, and that's okay. But the best news that I can offer this morning is that like the holy of holies for John, we are shown in Revelation that we are never abandoned in our loss. The Lord is beside us, remembering that loss and reassuring us that our loss is only for a season. But redemption and resurrection and recreation are forever. 
So what do we want to behold? What do we want to hold in awe today? What do we look forward to beholding and awing in the future? Who are those we miss and who are those we cherish now? What work is left for me to do and what work do I hope is being done after I'm gone? What impact do I want to make now? And how do I want it to manifest in the years to come? If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Revelation is not about an end or the end. I think that's the main misconception about it. Revelation is about a new beginning after a new beginning after a new beginning. It is about knowing that as we move forward, God moves forward with us. So as you move forward, know that God is with you now, even always, until the end of our age. Amen.